We're going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm Len, one of your elders, and currently, I guess I'm the interim pastor of care at East Campus. Now, please, don't feel like you need to call me pastor, okay? I'm just one of you trying to help out where I can, all right? Um, We're in the process of looking for a, a new pastor for East Campus to continue the marvelous work that God started through Doug. So pray for that process. You also may notice that the time and order of service is changing a bit. And this is in part to accommodate the central campus pastors who need to preach at central campus and then come here and preach here and then run back to central campus and preach again. So that's why things are changing a little bit. So again, turn in your Bibles then to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The prologue that he wrote about his gospel If you need a Bible, one should be on the shelf underneath the chair close by. The Gospel of Luke is is the third of four Gospels. It's after Matthew and Mark, but before John. It's located about four-fifths of the way through the Bible. Luke is the longest of the Gospels. And our study in Luke is going to be a journey for approximately two years But it will be worth it because Luke is going to strive to teach us and to give us certainty about the foundation of our Christian life, which is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, the one who came to seek and save the lost. Let's begin with prayer, huh? Father, thank you. Thank you for Luke, who was willing to expend so much time and effort to write his two-volume account of Jesus in order to help others grow. I'm unworthy and inadequate to speak your truth that transformed lives. But I know and we know that you are both infinitely worthy and totally capable. So we pray, speak to us from your word in this Gospel of Luke. Transform us into whole disciples for your glory and your good. Amen. Fake news. Fake news is news that has no basis in fact, but is presented as being factually accurate. Although false news has been around forever, the term fake news was first used in the 1890s. I didn't know that it went that far back. It was when, that, and back in the 1890s, evidently, there was a lot of sensational reports in the newspapers that were very common. So with the rise of the internet, though, on social media, we hear about fake news a lot more today. Is it fake news, or is it real news? 
Well, let's do a quiz. A quiz. So I'm going to read off a few headlines, one at a time, and you tell me what you think. Fake news or true news? Okay, here's the first one. Gatorade banned and fined $300,000 for bad-mouthing water. What do you think? Fake or true? No. It was true. Gatorade made an app game that portrayed water as bad, and they got sued for it. Okay. Here's another one. Okay. Just picture this one. Celebrate pancakes with a maple syrup bath at a famous Japanese hot springs resort. What do you think? Fake or real? It's real. How would you like? I like pancakes with a lot of syrup, but a bath in, in maple syrup? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Here's another one. An elderly woman trains her cats to steal from her neighbors. Fake or true? It was false. Okay. <laughs> You're not doing too good here, folks. Okay. Here's the last one. Jesus died for his sins and rose again. Okay, we know, we know the answer to that one. Okay. So while our culture tends to think this is fake news, the author of Luke's gospel claims that it's certain really true news, which is what the word gospel means. It means good news. Now, some of us may wonder at times if it is really true. Do you ever doubt? I, I doubt sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So why do we believe the story of Jesus is true? Well, here's the big idea for my sermon. Luke's narrative of Jesus is not fake news but true good news based on biblical, historical, and verifiable evidence. Let me read that again. Luke's narrative of Jesus is not fake news, but true good news based on biblical, historical, and verifiable evidence. Here's my plan. So when studying narratives, which the Gospels are, an important part of observing the text is to be like Columbo and bombard the text with questions like who, what, where, when, why, how, those kinds of questions. So, so these questions are going to be my sermon outline. The first one is who. Second one is what. The third is how. The fourth is why. The fifth is so what. And the last one, kind of extra credit, is but what about? Okay, so there we are. Who, what, how, why, so what, but what about? Okay, so let's start with the characters, the who's. So let's start with the author, Luke. Who's Luke? Luke isn't mentioned in the gospel as its author, but it was customary at the time Luke was writing for authors not to include their name on the scrolls. But the recipients, in this case, Theophilus, he sure would have known who the, God, who the author was. And he probably told his friends, no matter how it worked out, early in the church, in the history of the church, Luke was, was recognized unanimously as the author of this gospel. We don't have much historical background on Luke. From the few places he is mentioned in the Bible, we know or we learn that he was a physician and love for it. He was a co-worker with Paul. He was a loyal companion of Paul. And he was literarily skilled. 
His prologue that we're looking at this morning, verses 1 to 4, is one long Greek sentence in the classical literary style of Greek historians and biographers and scientific medical authors. But the rest of the book is written in more common Greek. It's as if he is pointing out in the prologue that he did his research well, like the other biographers or historians, and therefore it's true. But to make sure that everyone understands the events surrounding Christ, he will write the rest in the common Greek of the day. So there he is. That's Luke. But the recipient, Theophilus. Well, who's Theophilus? Well, we know who Theophilus is, don't we? He's somewhere in the, in the, in the room here. He's, he's the new son of Bethany and Wesley. Okay. But this Theophilus is a bit older, I'd say, okay? Maybe 2,060 years old or something like that. His name was common, meaning lover of God. His pro- he was probably a Greek or a Roman Gentile. The word most excellent might indicate he was a government official. Maybe he was Luke's patron who paid and, and, and supported and funded the writing project. He was probably a believer who had been taught or catechized, that's the Greek word, the things of Christ, but he has some questions, perhaps some doubts. Listen to Professor Daryl Bach's description of his situation. Professor Bach wrote, the Gospel of Luke is about life and God's plan. It's a story written to a man, Theophilus, who in all likelihood was a believer who needed reassurance. A Gentile in the midst of what had originally been a Jewish movement he seems to be, have been asking whether he really should be a Christian. Had God really called all nations to enter life with God? Was a crucified Messiah the beacon of hope for both Jews and Gentiles? Would God really save through a ministry that ended with crucifixion? What about the endless obstacles the church was suffering in getting its message out to the world? Might the obstacles be a sign of God's judgment on a message gone awry rather than evidence of blessing? So questions like these probably haunted Theophilus. We are like Theophilus. In our dark days, and maybe not so dark days or nights, I should say days aren't usually dark, okay? But in our dark times, we wonder as Theophilus did, Is it all true? Is the need for salvation and Jesus as Savior real? Is following Jesus worth pouring my life, money, and time into? Luke emphatically says, yes, it's true, and it's worth it. Let's go to the second question. What did Luke write? Well, he wrote a lot. Luke wrote more more pages of the New Testament than any other author, Approximately 30% of the New Testament is his. Now, remember that the Gospel of Luke is just volume one of his two-volume set of Luke and Acts. So in our text for today, he wrote a preface, again, in very literary Greek, to describe what and why he wrote. In verses 1 and 2, Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been written or accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the gospel delivered them to us. 
So while others had been writing narratives, which Luke will use as his resources, Luke is going to write also. It's going to be a narrative of God stepping into history to bring salvation to the world. A narrative of God stepping into history to bring salvation to the world. But not, not just to Jews, but to the world of nations, ethnicities, races, the marginalized, the poor, the outcast, the oppressed, the rejected. It's a narrative of things accomplished, written in the ESV, but the Greek word could be easily translated instead of accomplished, fulfilled, things fulfilled, pointing to the fact that this is biblical history that was prophesied earlier in the Old Testament. It's also a narrative based on eyewitness evidence, both written and oral. So Luke also is writing a narrative with some major themes, such as the Holy Spirit is moving. The book of Acts is famous for the movement of the Spirit, but Acts is the second book in Luke's series. The Spirit shows up first in Luke's gospel. Another theme is prayer works. Luke mentions prayer, either Jesus praying or teaching about prayer, more than any other gospel. Another theme is God saves. When the angel announced to the shepherds the arrival of Jesus, the angel said, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah. So the Messiah of Israel was coming as the Savior, not just of Israel, but for sin. But not the sins of Israel only. He came for the sins of the whole world. So not only does Luke present the spirit moving and prayer working and God saving, another theme is Jesus flips the norms upside down in his love and compassion. When Jesus came, he blessed, healed, and saved social outcasts like the poor and the sick and prostitutes and tax collectors. And he said, the prideful, the religious, and the powerful don't have any part of me. Jesus came to make outsiders insiders. Are you feeling like an outsider? Well, Jesus is here to take you as an outsider and make you an insider. So we've covered the questions, who and what? Third question was how. How did Luke write it? On well, verse 3, Luke says this. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, for some time to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So how did Luke give birth to his gospel? First, he researched the written and oral witnesses. In essence, Luke's gospel is the result of investigative journalism. He investigated the stories. He studied them closely. He went back to the beginning. The, 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 the phrases translated for some time in the ESV could perhaps better be translated from the beginning. He went all the way back to the beginning and studied it all. He was thorough. He studied all things, including the sources mentioned in verse 2 written accounts, oral testimonies of living eyewitnesses. Because of his thorough research, Luke's account is by far the longest of the Gospels and contains many extras that are not included in the other three Gospels. 30% of Luke is new stuff, such as extra details on the birth of John and Jesus. We can thank Luke for 
for 13 new parables and such stories as Zacchaeus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the famous parables of the Pharisees and tax collectors, the rich man and Lazarus and the prodigal son. Thank you, Luke. Isn't that great? So Luke did his research, but he didn't stop there. He also wrote an orderly account in a way that, that told the story of Jesus clearly so that Theophilus and those who came after could understand and be reassured that it was true. Orderly, but not necessarily totally chronological. All the Gospels do follow the basic order of a Greco-Roman biography. In each Gospel, the basic timeline is followed, but the details are rearranged, often thematically, for the author's purposes. And that was normal. What Luke wrote is biblical history. Again, many of the events recorded were spoken of hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. He wrote true history, not mythological or romanticized history. There were named eyewitnesses, named characters placed in political and historical context. But it was also a verifiable history. Most religions are based on things or revelations that happen in secret. But the core events of Luke's narrative, as well as the other Gospels, were done publicly, in the open, and are subject to verification, which Luke did. Because Luke's Gospel is based on history, it can be tested. And because it can be tested, it can be trusted. And we are talking about truth. We're talking about reality here. So William, William Ramsey was a famous archaeologist of the early 1900s. In his day, he was the foremost authority on Asia Minor. He was also a New Testament scholar. In his younger days, he was an agnostic who wanted to disprove the trustworthiness of the Bible. For his test case, he went to the Middle East to disprove Luke's historical accounts. After seeing how Luke's accounts coincided with archaeology, he wrote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness. That's still true. So let's take a, a theological sidetrack for a moment, okay? Luke worked hard in writing his narrative, but it was not all Luke, was it? The Holy Spirit was deeply involved in orchestrating the writing. The Apostle Paul wrote in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is what? Is what? God breathed. Okay, breathed out. Older translations might have said inspired, okay? This means that God superintended the writing of scripture so that the author's message, using their own words, experiences, and research, was God's intended message. So the Bible says that human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit to produce a document that is God-breathed. So Luke was involved, yes. The Holy Spirit was involved, yes. And the final product is exactly what God wanted to say. So we've considered the questions who, what, and how. Question four is why? Why did Luke write his gospel in Acts? Well, in verse 4, he answers the question that you, O Theophilus, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You may have certainty about what you've been taught. 
The Greek word translated certainty was placed at the end of this long Greek sentence in order to emphasize what Luke's purpose was. Luke's goal in writing 30% of the New Testament was to give Theophilus certainty and confidence in what he had been taught. Luke's purpose was to set out facts and true narrative accounts about Jesus so that Theophilus and others would know their belief was backed by solid evidence. Whatever pressure Theophilus was under, he could be confident that what had occurred through Jesus was God's sovereign plan. Luke showed Theophilus that indeed he did fit in as a Gentile and that God had brought him in along with many others as part of his divine plan. Once an outsider, Theophilus could have confidence that he was truly and certainly now an insider. What a great picture of a, of a disciple we see in Luke who spent so much time and effort to write all this just to stabilize the faith of brothers and sisters. So what? Question five is, so what? So what did Luke present that Theophilus, Paul's churches, and we today can believe with certainty? Here's just a few of the biggies, okay? First, Jesus is who, is who Luke claimed him to be. Son of God, Son of Man, Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world. Second, Jesus did what Luke claimed he did. Miracles, love the outcast, died on the cross to make forgiveness of sins possible for anyone who believed, and in so doing, he fulfilled prophecy. Third, outsiders can become insiders through Jesus. That's just three of the biggies. But let's park on that last one for a moment. One of the key themes of Luke is Jesus came to seek and save the lost. In the story unique to Luke about the outcast little tax collector named Zacchaeus, who climbed a tree to see Jesus, Luke writes this in chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, that is to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the who? The lost. Okay. Eleven huge words to grasp about Jesus. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, who we all were, who some of you might still be. Jesus came to save not just good Jews, but outcast Jews such as Zacchaeus. Not just outcast Jews, but the outcasts and the outsiders of the rest of the world. That is great news. He came to save the lost. Now Luke hinted at the expansion of the kingdom to include outsiders, Gentiles, and the whole world in his gospel. In chapter 4, in the synagogue in Nazareth, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus proclaimed his purpose by reading from Isaiah 61. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now Matthew and Mark start the beginning of Jesus' ministry by saying, Jesus said, repent, 
for the kingdom of God has come. But here in Luke, he, he says this instead. I've come for the, to give sight to the blind, to set at liberty those oppressed. And what he's quoting from Isaiah 61, what's interesting is that this is located in the last section of Isaiah's prophecy, which deals not only with the, res, with the restoration of Israel, but the inclusion of the Gentile nations. That was in Jesus' mind. That's probably in Luke's mind as he shares what Jesus said there. And Luke also hinted at this in the continual theme of caring for the poor, the outcasts, the prodigal son, the lepers, a crippled woman. And he went on, he didn't, while he hinted at it through the book, at the end of Luke, he makes it obvious. There, he, Jesus proclaims in Luke 24, this is after Jesus resurrected, and he has appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then Jesus appeared to the 11 and other disciples in the room, and here's what Jesus says in Luke 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day, rise from the dead. They didn't understand it while the, when it was happening. He goes on, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things. So it was hinted at in early Luke, Luke's gospel, proclaimed clearly at the end, and then we see it unfold in Luke's volume 2. Acts. So Luke began volume one, his gospel, with a Jewish baby in Bethlehem, and then in volume two, Acts, with the gospel, with the, the proclamation of Jesus, and churches planted throughout all of the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, the outsiders. Well, let's get to the extra credit question, number six. But what about... What about my doubts and questions? Living in a very skeptical and, and doubting culture, it is easy to have some doubts, isn't it? It's easy to have faith mixed with some doubts or questions. Here are six tips for dealing with doubt from a book called Now That I'm a Christian by Michael Patton. He says this, first, Recognize that faith is never totally black or white. One can have faith with some doubt, but biblical faith is never blind faith. It is based on having enough evidence. Not full evidence, but evidence, which Luke gives us. Number two, realize that most everyone has some doubts. Some of the greatest people in the Bible doubted Remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist, him being the greatest man who was ever born? At the end of John's life, before he was killed, he, had, he went through a time of doubt whether he was questioning whether Jesus was the Messiah. So realize that most everyone has some doubts. Three, don't suppress those doubts. Deal with them. Research. Talk to others. Pray. Four, lean on the faith of others you respect for their life of faith. This is called fellowship. This is called community. 
It's the body of Christ helping each other in our weaknesses. And as the body of Christ, we need to do a better job of something. We need to do a better job of being a safe place where folks can express their questions, can express their doubts, and find answers. We're all in this together. We're family. This fifth idea or point was to identify the source of your doubt. Is it intellectual? Seek answers. Many others have gone down that road. Lots of books about that. If it's emotional because of a tragedy or God's silence in your struggle, realize that you're not alone there. The Bible is full of believers who struggled in their times, the dark night of the soul, when God didn't appear to show up. Finally, he suggests, live according to the faith you have. Don't focus on the faith you don't have. Continue following Christ as you work through your doubt. Well, as, as we deal with doubts, is there evidence that Luke and other Gospels are true? Gene Warner Wallace was a cold case atheistic detective who used his cold case detective skills to examine the evidence for the trustworthiness of the Gospels. He came to the verdict that they were true, reliable witnesses. As a result, he became a believer and wrote a number of books, including Cold Case Christianity. It's a great book. He has a great website for both adults and children. And he wrote this in his Cold Case Christianity. The initial step in my journey toward Christianity was an examination or evaluation of the Gospels. I spent weeks and weeks examining the Gospel accounts as I would any witness account in a criminal case. So we asked the following questions of the Gospels as witnesses. Now, for the details, you're going to have to get the book, okay? All right, so here's the questions he asked. Were the eyewitnesses present? Were the Gospels write, written early enough to have been authored by or taken testimony from true eyewitnesses? The second question was, were they corroborated? Is the testimony of the Gospel writers confirmed by outside sources and evidence? His third question was, are the documents accurate and reliable? Fourth question, were they biased? Were the gospel writers motivated to lie about their testimony? Detective Wallace concluded his analysis of the witnesses this way, quote, we've examined the four important areas that jurors must consider when determining the reliability of eyewitnesses. The most reasonable inference is that the gospel writers were present, corroborated, accurate, and unbiased, unquote. So compared to other ancient documents, the Bible has a wealth of evidence and resources for demonstrating their trustworthiness. Books, I've got some of them here, okay? You can come up afterwards and take a look at them. Books and websites, great resources. I've got some lists of websites if you'd like to come and grab one, okay? Lots of information and evidence. But remember, there is more to convincing someone of the reality of Jesus than just evidence. The apologetics of intellectual evidence is one pathway, an important pathway. But the apologetics of love and unity amongst believers 
Perhaps there's even a greater validation of the reality of Jesus. And third, the apologetics of the Holy Spirit who opens hearts and minds and convicts, well, that's essential. That has to happen for anyone to believe. Well, in summary, our faith is biblical faith, historical faith, verifiable faith. Because loose gospel is based on history, it can be tested. And because it can be tested, it can be verified. And because it can be verified, it can be trusted. Jesus isn't fake news. He's the true good news. He isn't a myth or fantasy. People like you and me saw it happen. And then Luke wrote it down carefully. Consequently, we can have confidence that Jesus is the truly good news. He opens the way for all kinds of people to become part of God's family. Outsiders can certainly become insiders. Let me close with some implications. Four. First of all, we all struggle with doubt. Some more than others. Let Luke build your certainty that his story of Jesus is true. Let Luke convince you of who Jesus is. Let him convince you of what Jesus did. Let Jesus convince you that any outsider can become an insider, part of God's family. The second one, if you're a serious disciple of Jesus, let Luke help you fall more deeply in love with Jesus and become a deeper, more intense follower of this amazing, beautiful Savior that we have. A whole disciple loves Jesus. Third, if you claim to be a Christian but are not seriously following Jesus, you are not taking Luke or God seriously. Maybe you're a Christian because your parents were or your friends are, so you go to church. What Luke exhorts you to do is this. Get real about Jesus. Stop messing around. A whole disciple lives Jesus. The fourth one is, if you're not a follower of Jesus and haven't taken the time to see if he is more than a myth, come here weekly to hear what Luke wants you to learn about Jesus. Be open to him convincing you that Jesus is not fake news, but true good news. True good news, the best true news, is that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you place your trust in Jesus as your Savior from sin, you as an outsider can become an insider, part of God's family forever. A whole disciple learns Jesus. Well, back in the 70s, that's way back in the 1970s, okay? Some of us identify with that, okay, okay. I enjoyed the music of a hippie Christian band that was portrayed in the recent movie, Jesus Revolution. The band's name was Love Song, and their music style was a blend of the Beach Boys, the Beatles, with a dash of country western thrown in. One of the songs that touched me was called The Book of Life. The lyrics of the chorus are a great way to end this exploration of the birth of Luke's gospel. The words are these. 
I tried to get the beat right, okay? I kept my thumb between the pages and my heart in the book. Talking about the book of life. When my life gets too confusing, well, I stop and take a second look. Take another look in the book of life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, cause us to become people of your book of life. Cause us to become whole disciples of Jesus, who is our bread of life. Increase our confidence in the trustworthiness of Luke's gospel and in Jesus. And through Luke's narrative of Jesus, cause us to love Jesus more deeply, follow him more fully, and come to him for true forgiveness of sins. For your glory, we pray this, and for our good.